and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Jelena Sofronievich. Working in broadcasting makes you obsessively aware of your own voice. Whenever I tell people that I'm from the West Midlands, I almost always receive the same response. Thank God you dodged the Brummie accent. Navigating between my mother's rogue black country twang and my father's strong Serbian inflection, I often consider how and why I arrived at my current, comparatively neutral, state of affairs, supposedly a voice for radio. But as social media offers a platform for more regional and international voices, we've become accustomed to consuming a diverse range of accents. Even Her Majesty has been turning down her RP in recent years. So is the Queen's English still the benchmark for an acceptable accent, or have we become accustomed to a new neutral tone altogether? To unpack everything accents, I'm delighted to be joined by two special guests. Alex Baratta is a sociolinguist and senior lecturer in language, linguistics and communications at the University of Manchester. Hi, Alex. Hi. And Dominic Watt is a senior lecturer in the Department of Language and Linguistic Science at the University of York. He also works on Accent Bias Britain. Hi, Dom. Hello. So first off then, Dom, what is the hierarchy of accents in the UK today? Do we have a standard accent? We do have a standard accent yet. Yeah, actually, there's more than one in the UK, but let's focus on the, the standard accent of, of England, which is received pronunciation, so-called. These days, sometimes also known as standard Southern British English. Most of us will tend to think of that accent when the phrase British English is mentioned. That's certainly true internationally. It's what people think British English sounds like. And it's an accent that's been standardised over the past perhaps 150 years. It's not a very old accent, didn't exist before Victorian times. And it's come to be the standard accent for broadcasting in the clergy, the military and so on. Alex, do you think that the dominant RP has been replaced by something slightly softer, but still perhaps a generic Southern English accent? I think so. Uh, I mean, RP itself has different varieties from more conservative, so I mean, like Downton Abbey, to more contemporary. But I think with regard to social mobility and more of a societal push for equality, we're getting into a phase, I would say, where certainly, as Dom said, standard Southern British English is seen as a societal standard. But I think there are, as also was mentioned, standard accents. And I think what makes an accent perceived as standard or some might say neutral or the classic, I don't have an accent, when of course everyone does, is to get rid of the more local sounds. Those that can identify a speaker to his or her region of origin, sometimes with just one single word. So if someone is from Liverpool, but has a more general, or as they call in Liverpool, posh Scouse accent, it's going to take a couple of sentences before we start to think, oh, wait a second, you're from Liverpool, whereas a broad variety, uh, you know, one word will do it very often, not just for Liverpool, for all city regions. So I think standardization and standardness is nothing official, but societal perceptions are to tone down the more regional sounds, but not to the point that you throw the baby out with the linguistic bathwater, so to speak. And Alex, can you tell me a little bit more about how our accents shape the way that others perceive us? Are we prejudiced towards some accents because they show us to be more intelligent or professional than others? There's certainly a a prejudice or certainly a preference with regard to accents all over the world. I don't believe, though, that there's anything inherently one or the other about accents. I don't think there's any kind of sound symbolism. So when we say that certain accents are trustworthy or certain accents sound ugly or harsh or wonderful or sexy, 
Linguistically speaking, I would argue there's no such thing. But societal perceptions in that regard, there certainly is. But I don't think it's necessarily because of any inherent qualities of sounds per se, mm. such as bath versus bath. I don't think the ah sound in that context at least, at least is really saying anything. What it is, it's the connotations of the speakers that we put onto the accents, onto the sounds. So if we hear someone say bath, then we know they're obviously from the South, whether they're RP speaker or not. And then any connotations we have of the South, depending on who we are, you know, who's doing the listening, will be put onto the accents. So I would argue, yeah, we hear sounds. Of course we do, but I think we hear connotations with regard to what the perceptions are of that speaker's group, whether it's based on race, class, regional origin, national origin, and they're put onto the languages we hear, whether it's a full-blown language, like hearing French or an accent or a dialect. Dom, as clear class boundaries have blurred over time, do you think that we still associate accents with class or socioeconomic status in England? I think we do, and I, I would want to, I think, take issue a little bit with the idea that the class boundaries have blurred, but that's really a separate question. Nevertheless, your accent is a really quick flag or badge of your social status, and to that extent, it's used very much as a marker by listeners of, of where you sit within the social hierarchy. That hasn't gone away. Um, we still work today with attitudes that go back you know, well over a century, more like a century and a half, um, in respect of using a person's accent really as a kind of a shorthand for their social standing. Now, unlike some other markers of, of social status, accent is free and in principle, people can modify their accents to become more standard sounding. And that can, the thinking goes, give you a leg up the, the social ladder. And it's no accident that courses and, and books will teach you to soften your accent, to modify your accent. Those are seen as very attractive in the world of, of business, for example. The thinking goes anyway. You can uh, significantly boost your career prospects if you should sound right, you know, if you sound like you're a member of this rather exclusive club. What do you think our relationship with accents says about our culture then in the UK and the way that we perceive different people? Do you think that we do live in an accentist society? Absolutely, yes. And and the UK is, is famous for that, really. There's a, a huge diversity of accent variation in the UK. And although most people speak non-standard varieties, the political, economic, intellectual, cultural control is really the preserve of people who have been through a particular sort of education and have acquired a certain kind of accent through that. You know, it's seen as the, if you like, the, the pinnacle of linguistic achievement if you speak that way. It's, it's viewed as the correct way to speak for all that that's a very kind of arbitrary description of the accent itself. Now, my father grew up in Yugoslavia and still he describes the soft accents of people who come from Panchevo, which is just northeast of Belgrade, as symbolic of their urbanite, almost town mouse traits. Do you think that other countries and other cultures do share our obsession with regional accents in particular, Alex? I think so. I don't think it's necessarily just a British thing. And it's not. I mean, all over the world, as long as there's different accents, there will certainly be 
accents which are perceived more favorably. So in Spain, if you're from the South, Andalusia, then that accent is usually seen perhaps in Spanish media as portraying someone a bit slow. In Korea, if you're from Pusan, which is in the Southeast, likewise. And Pusan men hear a man speaking with a Seoul accent, and that can be seen as very uh, effeminate, you're not a real man. But I think in the British context, it is tied to class specifically. Mm. Uh, in the U.S., for example, it's more about race and ethnicity. So the bigger picture, though, is we hear certain accents, we hear certain full-blown languages, whether it's Swahili or Dutch, and we make snap judgments. That is, I would say, worldwide. Do you think that there's any merit to being a so-called accent chameleon? Or do you think it simply can reinforce a kind of imposter syndrome amongst people, a sense of belonging nowhere? It can be both. I think it depends on the individual. It certainly depends on why they're doing it. If someone tells them you're not going to get the job sounding like that, they might just accept that, take it on the chin and think, yeah, I'm going to go to a job interview. I'm not going to wear my pajamas. I'm going to wear a suit. Uh, so why should I not change how I speak? Which can be more than just accent. You slow down, maybe. You put certain emphasis on your words. You try and sound engaged. So in that sense, we can say, look, it's just a very objective response to social reality that if I speak a certain way, I'm going to be seen in a negative way, perhaps. But certainly for some who are very proud of how they speak, and by extension, again, beyond the sounds, proud of what it represents, and I've certainly done research where people say, I'm proud of my accent because it shows me as being from the North and being from the North and working class means I'm straightforward. I'm friendly. I'm real. So once that's diluted, whether it means going from bath to bath or bus to bus, then it can be an issue. And people might say, and they have, and I've, you know, I'll just put it out there. I've been slagged off for some <laughs> what I've said, but you know, what I've said is simply, it's not just about sounds. When people say, well, it's just an accent. You can change your accent easy enough. What's the big deal? It's about, again, the connotations. So if someone says, oh, he sounds Northern, I don't think they're focusing on the bus as much as they're focusing on what does it mean to be a Northerner? And I've met people who said, you must come to the South, far better quality of life and people. And that was made by a, a comment made by someone I worked with a long time ago. And so for this individual, hearing Northern accents might mean then, less quality of life and people. And it sounds simplistic, but stereotyping is simplistic. It saves, it's a time-saving device. Dom, you mentioned elocution lessons earlier. Now, Thatcher very famously undertook training to deepen and emasculate her voice to be taken seriously in politics. What is the relationship between accents and gender? Typically speaking, women in this country will tend to it's a, it's a huge generalisation, I should say that, but they will tend to sound more standard. They will modify their accents more towards the standard than men will. So the most conservative speakers, the, the, the people who preserve the, the oldest, most traditional language styles, tend to be men, tend to be older men, working class men. Women, it seems, I mean, this is the traditional view among sociolinguists anyway, women are more conscious of the social costs attached to speaking in a non-standard or a stigmatized way. Women are also, generally speaking, caregivers to, to children more than men are, and therefore their linguistic values get passed on to children more, more readily, you could argue. Now, paradoxically, women also tend to be innovators in language more than men are. And so where innovations in a language, in an accent, start to come in. It tends to be women who lead those. 
So they, they kind of live this, this double life, if you will. Um, on the one hand, they have a, a more positive orientation towards the standard, supposing that there is one. Um, but at the same time, they're the ones that are making the changes in language and passing those innovations on to, to children. Huge generalizations, I don't deny that, but that's at least for the past few decades, that's been accepted as more or less the orthodoxy among people who study language variation and change. Alex, do you think that accent bias is more pervasive in certain professions or spheres of society? Obviously, we've just mentioned Thatcher in politics there. And if so, why? I definitely do think accent bias is more of an issue in certain professions. The reason is because it goes back to perceptions. I mean, here's a scenario which I don't think is particularly contrived. If we have two individuals who have submitted their CVs, let's say for a banking position, the CVs are identical, so to speak. They both have aced you know, university, got a first-class degree and, and such, they both look very attractive. And that's why they were selected for a telephone interview, which then goes to the next stage of face-to-face. Let's say one speaks RP of some description, then one has a very broad regional accent, let's say broad, I don't know, Newcastle. I'm not picking on accents, of course. I'm just simply distinguishing between regional versus class-based. Who would get the next round of interview? Now, we can't answer that, of course. But would someone with a broad regional accent be perceived in a more negative way or in a negative way than someone speaking RP? Let's assume they can be understood. I think it's a bit of a weasel way of getting out of this. Oh, I just can't understand the accent, so you need to you need to speak differently. Well, that may or may not be the case. Sometimes we can understand accents absolutely fine. What we understand actually is not we don't understand what they're saying, but the negative stereotypes. So professions like banking, there is in fact evidence. It's the Sutton Trust, which put out the brown shoes effect, which is saying that people in the working class are not getting into professions like banking. Accent, not everything, but certainly it's a part of it, their language use. My own research about teachers who are being told to modify their accent so the the students can understand better, even if they're not teaching phonics, even when they're teaching their own home region, where the students are going to largely speak just like the teacher, whether it's Yorkshire or Birmingham or wherever. So I think it does go on, but it's not in law. We can't, you know, no one's going to say you have to change your accent. Now in teaching, we have the teacher's standards, which are built in to the Department for Education. The teacher's standards make it very clear you have to use standard English. Standard English is what we're all speaking right now, but the three of us have different accents. The only way they kind of get around this is saying you must use articulacy. Now that's a very, very loaded word. Who describes what is or is not an articulate accent? I would argue from a linguistic point of view, there's no such thing. From a societal point of view, we know there is. So, yeah, this is definitely relevant to the careers we do. And it shouldn't be, but it is. I'd like to ask you more about your research on teachers, because it finds that some teachers have been asked to flatten their accents in order to be more neutral and less regional. But do you think Mm. that that really prepares children for the diversity of life outside the classroom? And does it actually contradict efforts to diversify curriculums more broadly? Yeah, I don't think it prepares them as well as they could be. And I think it is running contrary to a curriculum, which is, as I mentioned earlier, really focused more than ever certainly more than when I was a boy, on promoting diversity and awareness of diversity in all ways. And that should include linguistic diversity. 
I mean, for some children, you know, there's some children that may have, never have gone outside their hometown, never been to London, never been to any other city. And so to hear a teacher with has an accent, which is different, I think it's going to get the children's attention. That could be a great way of, you know, starting the lesson and running with that. But I think it does run contrary because teachers are being told to get away from these, as I like to call them, phonological giveaways, sounds which immediately identify someone. Now, if someone says Bath Bos, we know they're from the north right away. We can't say which city, maybe. That's going to take a bit more digging, but we know they're not from the south. And these phonological giveaways, to tie this in with a point I made earlier, if we think of a very broad Liverpool accent, Take a sentence such as the nurse came back. I would say the nurse came back. That's how I say it. But a broad Liverpudlian might say the nurse came back. Now we say, ah, right away. I know you're a scouser. But it's that sound, bach. So if a, a word ends with a K, the velar stop, in Liverpudlian English, again, broad Liverpool accent, it becomes what we call a velar fricative. So to put it crudely, it's like a strong H. And it has been said in published research, the Liverpool accent is a mixture of Irish, Lancashire, and Qatar. And it sounds like they have some kind of congestion because of this Bach and Doch for duck. So we say, aha, it is about sound symbolism. See, there are sounds which are inherently, we're predisposed to not like them. But here's the thing. If we hear the, exactly the same sound in Spanish, like the word jamón, meaning ham, I know it sounds sexy, right? Sounds romantic. We hear it in German. We're probably not going to think of congestion. We're probably going to think of like the word Nach for night. Oh, you sound German, so, you know, sit up straight, especially if it's a, a car commercial. All these perceptions. But linguistic reality, which is very objective and very, can I say, fair, is very often trumped by a societal reality. So I can say this all day long. People say, well, that's interesting. But as a minute they hear a certain accent, oh, get away. You know, there's not much a whole team of linguists can do about that. But education is a start. Not a, I don't mean that in a very elitist way at all. I just simply mean explaining that, you know, what this is all about and how languages change and how dialects not fail attempts to master the standard and, and, and so on and so forth. But accent prejudice, linguistic prejudice is a real issue. And if it means you're not getting the, uh, the job or a GP appointment or not being shown around for an apartment, which is otherwise for rent, then, we, we, you know, this is a problem. I noticed that the Speaker of the House, Lindsay Hoyle, was recently described in The Guardian as having a rich Lancastrian accent. Dom, do you think that public figures like Hoyle or perhaps the likes of Hugh Edwards are still exceptions to the rule? Are they othered in their professional spheres in the media and politics? I think we make note of these people who have marked regional accents in positions of great influence and power, like being the Speaker of the House of Commons like being a, a national newscaster, because they stand out, because they're different. If they had standard accents, nobody would remark upon it, because that's the expectation, isn't it? If you're a BBC newscaster, well, you speak proper BBC English. Oh, who's this Hugh Edwards guy with his Welsh dulcet tones? Well, you know, they're considered acceptable. Hugh Edwards is clearly very competent, knows what he's doing. It's as though the accent is being tolerated, but it's not the expectation. So for all that we can hold up examples like Lindsay Hoyle, like Hugh Edwards, um, as good examples of a more progressive attitude, the fact that we have these um, public figures that we, we always point to, well, that, that tells you something about what's considered the default in the same way that in certain professions it's considered necessary to say that it's a, it's a female person 
involved, you know, a female film director, um, as though, you know, that's somehow the exception. Whether they're othered in their in professional spheres, well, they've risen to the top of their game. I, I once uh, I once did an interview with John Prescott, the the Labour politician, who you know he used to say my accent has been used against me time and again. You know, I'm I'm from this uh, background. He was actually born in Wales, but people tend to think of him as being a Yorkshireman. You know, I said to him, but but John, you became the deputy prime minister. It's not you know to that extent. It's not really held you back has it again you know the exception that sort of proves the rule so i think we have to take stock of what the general pattern is here yes this kind of othering in professional spheres does go on and we we don't become aware of the people whose career trajectories have been blocked because of factors such as accent prejudice we see the people who've risen to the top in spite of rather than because of their linguistic difference. And earlier you mentioned how we might associate these accents as signifying some kind of honest or salt-of-the-earth qualities. And those are the kind that we might see as being essential to, for instance, the government's levelling up agenda. Do you think that regional or foreign accents are now being weaponised in the media as a proxy symbol for being progressive? I think there's certainly the potential for that to happen. Um, As Alex referred to earlier, we, we can distinguish between the positive associations that people have with different accents in in two ways. Okay, so we could think of what we call solidarity traits, which are to do with kinds of social characteristics that we we find likeable, like trustworthiness, approachability, sense of humour, honesty, straightforwardness, those sorts of traits. And then on the other hand, the kind of status traits which are associated with standard forms of English, Those are to do with perceived intelligence, industriousness, competence. That comes at the expense of being perceived to be cold, aloof, snobbish, uh, unapproachable, possibly devious or dishonest. Weaponising of of non-standard varieties, that's an interesting way to put it. I suppose if there's a tradition of political radicalism in this country, which is associated with people from disadvantaged backgrounds, the working classes historically, then you could say, well, if you want to try and uh, level up British society so that everybody's getting a fair chance, you are going to have to confront the fact that, you know, most people speak in a non-standard accent and therefore you are going to see people who speak that way in some of the elite, less accessible professions in greater numbers. Um, Yes, they're, they're going to appear in places that you maybe might not have expected them to before. And finally, then, from both of you, do you think that the standard accent will continue to dominate? I think it will. I think there will always be a perceived need to have a standard accent, or what is understood as being standard. I do believe, and Dom has mentioned this too, that there's more than one. I think, even though it's not written down, I don't think it ever would be, but I think British people have very much an intuition about what is standard. And yes, you could say there's maybe a hierarchy of standardness from you know, the very cut glass sounding RP, which is very much a minority within a minority, which obviously can have negative perceptions also, depending on who's doing the listening, to just having a regional accent, but not making it too regional. I think it's a happy medium. So, I mean, even estuary English retains features of both RP and Cockney, which to put it bluntly, some would say is respectively posh and common. So it's not too posh. It's not too quote unquote 
common. And it's likewise, you know, we may not call it a standard Manchester accent, but there's certainly a variety referred to as general Northern English. And the thing is, the more standard, the more standard an accent becomes, what we're saying is you're removing these phonological giveaways, you're removing these local sounds. And so what it means is you have a standard accent, which is pan-regional. So if you say a general Northern accent, yeah, it could be Manchester, could be, could be Liverpool, could be Yorkshire. It'll take a bit of discourse and listening before you finally peg the speakers where they're from within the North. But the point is, if you lose the regional features to a certain extent, no one's going to know what part of the North you're from, other than you are from the North, unless you go full RP, which is class-based anyway. So I think we'll always have an intuition of what standard is. Uh, unlike standard English, in terms of grammar and vocabulary, there's no standard accent guidelines per se that I'm aware of. Nothing certainly that's written in laws to how you must sound. But teachers, for example, you must use standard English. There's nothing to say you have to have a certain accent. But they are being told to speak in what are effectively less regional sounding accents. So people are not going to suddenly say you're from here or there. So glottal stops tend to be forbidden, you know, not saying woa or in the north pi, pronouncing the T's, but you hear the same, well, it's not a sound. You hear the same use in, say, Arabic. I don't think any Arabic speaker would see a glottal stop as one or the other. So again, it's, it goes back to the whole lack of sound symbolism. But sounds, even one single sound, can really be an issue for some people. As long as some people get offended by the word bus or even buzz, then this is not going to end, this preference and prejudice. Will the standard accent continue to dominate? I think, as, as Alex has suggested, it's, it's very entrenched in, in British society. Lots of other language communities have standard accents that are valued very highly. You know, their, their pronunciations are represented in dictionaries, which are used worldwide. Teachers of English overseas, they may actually be um, appointed in large part on the strength of the fact that they themselves speak a standard form of the language or are prepared to teach it. And so, you know, to some extent, I think there's a, so much invested in the idea of a standard British accent that it could be very difficult to distance ourselves in the longer term from that idea. Nevertheless, there are lots of languages out there which don't have standard forms. You don't even have to go outside the British Isles to find examples of the Scottish Gaelic, for example, doesn't have a codified standard form. And people get on just fine without one. They are useful things, having said this. Uh, there's, there's no doubt that a standard form of English has certainly shown its value. It's just when it becomes elevated to be the, the pinnacle of linguistic creation, as though it's the only correct form of the language. I mean, this is a, a really common idea. It enjoys this special status because it is the correct way of speaking. And then, you know, therefore the flip side of that is that all other ways of speaking are incorrect. And you can use that as a stick to beat people with if they, you know, they, they, they use forms which are not on the approved list. How they would get away from that idea, I think, in the current climate, well, um, I think linguists, we, we are trying, as Alex said earlier, we do have the ear of people in the corridors of power. You know, we do have the, the ability to influence policy here, but it's, you know, this is a ship that is going to take a very uh, long time to change direction. But as sociolinguists, we are, I think, duty-bound to at least speak our minds and say to those who are prepared to listen, you do realise that a lot of these 
judgments of things like correctness and incorrectness are completely arbitrary. As Alex said, you know, calling something a bath rather than a bath isn't any closer to the, the essence of bathness for the object you're describing. It's just an arbitrary label for the object. It just so happens that a lot of people have bought into the idea that there is only one legitimate label for the, the things that we see out there in the world. And the moment you can break that link and start to say, well, this is arbitrary. There's no special reason I should call this object a bread roll rather than a cob or a bap. It doesn't matter so long as we, we're all on the same page and that, uh, you know, fundamentally, can we understand each other? And if the answer to that is yes, having a standard form is not really all that absolutely paramount. Dom, Alex, thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you very much. And listeners, remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you liked this episode, why not share it with three friends using the hashtag BunkerUp? You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. This is Jelena Sofronievich signing out of the Bunker. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Yelna Sofronievich. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>